Jeremiah chapter 31, beginning in about verse 21, set up signposts, make landmarks, set your heart toward the highway, the way in which you went. Turn back, O virgin of Israel. Turn back to these cities. How long will you get about, O you backsliding daughter? For the Lord has created a new thing in the earth. A woman shall encompass a man. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, they shall again use this speech in the land of Judah and in its cities when I bring back their captivity. The Lord bless you, O home of justice and mountain of holiness. And there shall dwell in Judah itself, in all its cities together, farmers and those going out with flocks. For I have satiated the weary soul, and I have replenished every sorrowful soul. And this I awoke and looked around, and my sleep was sweet to me. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast. And it shall come to pass that as I have watched over them to pluck up, to break down, to throw down, to destroy and to afflict. So I will watch over them to build and to plant, says the Lord. In those days they shall say no more. The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge but every one shall die for his own iniquity. And every man who eats the sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the hand of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, Though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying, Know the Lord. For they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for a light by day, the ordinances of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar. The name of the Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, says the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that the city shall be built for the Lord from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate. The surveyor's line shall again extend straight over the hill Gareb. Then it shall turn toward Goat 
and the whole valley of the dead bodies and of the ashes and of all the fields as far as the brook Kidron to the corner of the horse gate toward the east shall be holy to the Lord. It shall not be plucked up or thrown down anymore forever. In Jeremiah chapter 30 and in Jeremiah chapter 31, Jeremiah is writing about the restoration of Israel and Judah. And he talks about a powerful new covenant. Jeremiah has brought attention in chapter 30 to the cleansing that precedes the restoration. And he talks about a time of sorrow, a time of trouble, a time of such great tribulation like the world has never ever seen. And it's spoken of in the book of Matthew chapter 24 and 25 and in the book of Revelation. It's often referred to as the time of Jacob's sorrow. And then Jeremiah then describes the conditions during the restoration. Israel is regathered and resettled in the land from throughout the world. There is an ingathering, if you will, as Jeremiah envisions the Jews who have gathered around the Mediterranean Rim, North Africa and Asia and from the four corners of the planet. And they all come back to the land. He describes Israel as regathered and resettled and Israel serving the Lord and serving David their king. The capital of Jerusalem is rebuilt. The population will increase. Once again, the people of Israel are God's special people. They will experience unprecedented joy. The restoration is guaranteed by the new and the everlasting covenant. And this covenant will be superior to the old covenant. And unlike the old covenant, which was based on several conditions, the new covenant will be unconditional. The old covenant was insecure. The new covenant will be secure. The new covenant is a picture. It's a sneak peek of, in part, regeneration, a new heart, what the Bible calls being born again. <clears throat> now, I grew up in a time when born again became a pretty misunderstood word. Many people said, you know, I want to be a Christian, but I just don't want to be one of those born againers. And it seemed to indicate that there was a misunderstanding exactly what that meant. But what born again means in John chapter 3 is born from on high, born by the power of the Holy Spirit. It, it, it's a description of a person who comes into a right relationship with God and the old heart is done away and you're given a new heart. And this chapter is a chapter about the heart. And so we begin with our first question. And it has to do with my heart. And it has to do with your heart. You don't have to whisper it to your neighbor and you don't have to raise your hand, but I am going to ask you a question. How would you characterize your heart? Just in your mind right now, begin to describe what you think your heart is like. Do you have a good heart? Do you have an evil heart? 
And you might be thinking, well, what constitutes a good heart and what constitutes an evil heart? A good heart reaches out to others. An evil heart takes advantage of others. A good heart is selfless. Uh, An evil heart is selfish. What does a wicked heart look like? Think anger. Think bitterness. Think hostility. Think holding grudges. Think sinking revenge. Think crumbling, complaining, gossiping. Think of a heart that tears down the character and reputation of others. Think about selfishness, seeking to please yourself, no matter how much pain and no matter how much misery it's going to cause other people. And if those are the characteristics of your heart, then you have every reason to believe that you have a troubled heart, an empty heart, a wicked heart. There is a restoration that's going to take place for the people of Israel. And there's a restoration that comes from, for the person who has a broken heart. Earlier, in, we looked over verses 21 through 24, where it says, Set up the signpost, make landmarks, set your heart towards the highway. It was Jeremiah's way of saying that there are generations that went before us and now you are a new generation and so make sure that in your generation you are pointing people in the direction of the promise. That you're pointing people in the direction of the restoration. In other words, this is Jeremiah's way of saying, guess what, God has a plan and a purpose. It includes forgiveness and the restoration of the people of Judah and Israel the way in which you went. He says, turn back, O virgin of Israel. Remember what I said to you earlier. Israel was apostate and wicked. But God's going to restore her, if you will. Turn back to your cities. How long will you gad about, O you backsliding daughter? For the Lord has created a new thing in the earth. A woman shall encompass a man. And we just very briefly talked about that. That contrary to the practice of women... uh, to the practice of women, the the idea is that Israel will woo the Lord. In other words, usually the relationship is a man pursues the woman. Typically when I meet a couple, I'll ask them the question, who liked who first? And I don't do it to start a fight, but sometimes it results in a fight. Well, you liked me first. No, you liked me first. Typically, Almost always, not every time, the guy likes the girl first. And I'll typically ask the question, how did you let her know? How did you let her know, hey, I think I, I, think I have a big crush on you. And so that's the idea. The idea is that Israel will start to pay attention and will start to turn her affections back towards the Lord. In verse 23, it says, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, they shall again use the speech in the land of Judah and in its cities when I bring back their captivity. The Lord bless you, O home of justice and mountain of holiness. In other words, Israel and Judah becomes a place where God is honored and where the things of God are honored. It becomes a type and a picture of an environment where people begin to recognize it makes perfect sense that that in Israel, the people of Israel should love the Lord of Israel, the Lord who's made the promises to Israel. 
the Lord bless you. And then it says, and there shall dwell in Judah itself and in all of its cities together farmers and those going out with flocks. For I have satiated the weary soul. I've replenished every sorrowful soul. For this I awoke and looked around and my sleep was sweet to me. In other words, remember what's happened. The country has collapsed. Jerusalem, Jerusalem has fallen. Most people are dying or dead. It is an apocalyptic picture of destruction. And in that midst of the apocalyptic picture of destruction, Jeremiah gives this prophecy of restoration and return. And that's when it's hardest to see the promises of God. When you are in the ash heap, when you are in the darkness, when you are in the difficult place. And then in verse 26, he says, after this, I awoke and looked around and my sleep was sweet to me. What does that mean? Does that mean that all of chapter 30 and what we've read of chapter 31 was a dream? Have you ever been watching a television program or a movie and all of these wild and crazy things are happening and all of a sudden you see the person wake up out of their bed and you go, Phew, it was just a dream. Is this just a dream? Is this just wishful thinking? But I'm going to suggest to you, no, it isn't a dream. That Jeremiah has seen a vision because it was sweet. Israel will be regathered. Israel will, will be resettled in the land. They will serve the Lord. David will be their king. Their population will increase. And God will love them with an everlasting love. They will, will experience unprecedented joy. And, and the reason why all of this becomes important to you is because in the darkness, in the wickedness, in the difficulty, haven't you ever said... I wonder if this nightmare is ever going to end. I wonder if this emptiness is ever going to be full. I wonder if this circumstance is ever going to change. And the Bible makes it abundantly clear that God is going to do a work. In verse 27, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast. It's a metaphor. It's the metaphor of a farmer. When a farmer farms the field, he, he plows the field and he plants the seed. In this particular instance, the seed are human beings. And animals. Remember the book of Revelation describes a time of unprecedented sorrow. Where one third of all humanity is wiped out in a catastrophic circumstance. It looks so bad. Jesus talks about it in Matthew 24 and 25. Like no human beings will survive. Gold will be more plentiful than humanity. But God envisions a time of increase. And it says in verse 28, and it shall come to pass that as I have watched over them to pluck up, to break down, to throw down, to destroy, and to afflict, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, says the Lord. There's an, there's an interesting clue that's given in verse 28. And it shall come to pass that as I've watched over them to pluck them up, to break them down, to throw them down, to destroy and to afflict. The interesting clue is this. Is God at work and watching when things are going bad? Is God at work and watching when things are going good? 
There's a sovereign God who is at work. He is tearing down. He is building up. He's breaking down, throwing down, destroying, afflicting. Why? In order to build up, in order to recreate, in order to comfort. You see, there might be times in your life where you are thrown down and you are afflicted and you are in a difficult circumstance. You might find yourself minding your own business, then all of a sudden, while you're reading, working, playing, traveling, you have a massive stroke and you wind up in the hospital. Anything could happen. Your life can change in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. If someone turns left instead of right, your life could be forever changed. But God is at work. And it says in verse 29, In those days they shall say no more, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. The idea being, when you eat sour grapes, what happens when you eat sour grapes? You pop the grape in your mouth and you go, you make that sour puss face. The idea is you are grumpy, you're complaining. And so the metaphor here is that, you know, it's, this is, verse 29 is like Murphy's Law. If anything bad can happen, it will happen. Murphy's Law will one day be reversed forever. Instead of saying, if something bad's going to happen, it will happen, what the Lord is in fact saying is, guess what? That's not the case at all. The vast majority of people are going to anticipate not something bad happening, but something good happening. So in verse 30, when it says, but everyone shall die for his own iniquity, every man who eats the sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. In other words, the implication being, guess what? If something bad happens, it's because you initiated it. You went out of your way. You cultivated and created an atmosphere where, where something bad had to happen. In other words, you're not going to be victim of difficult circumstances. But each person is going to be responsible for their own sad circumstances. And so he starts by talking about the covenant that guarantees the restoration in verse 31. And this is the key. It says in verse 31, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This is an amazing statement that takes place between verses 31 and 34. And it's amazing for so many different reasons. It's one of the significant covenants of the scripture. It's remarkably full. It talks about the time of the covenant in verse 31 and 33, the parties to the covenant in verse 31, the contrast in the covenant, the mosaic and the new covenant, the terms of the covenant in verse 33, the comprehensiveness of the covenant in verse 34, the basic features of the covenant in verse 34, the knowledge of God, forgiveness of sin, the perpetuity of the people in the covenant in verses 35 through 37, the guarantee of the covenant, the city will be rebuilt. It goes on and on and on. There's so much that I could spend the next several weeks talking about it, but I'm not going to be able to. So we begin with the source of the covenant, the Lord himself. I want just to draw a couple of broad things just for your information. The emphasis is I will. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will. 
that expression, I will, is used five times in verse 31, in verse 32, in verse 33, verse 34. Why is that important? Because God is the source of the covenant. This is not salvation that the people make up. This isn't wishful thinking on the part of the people. This isn't some sort of religious construct that a bunch of people have got together and they go, hey, let's just make up a religion where everybody's happy and, everybody, and, and, and we can read this. And it ended happily ever after. This is, this is not that. This is not a man-made religion. The Lord, the Lord himself is the source of the covenant. He also, note the terms, not only I will, but I made, and I took, and my covenant. Because the emphasis that's being drawn is that God is both the source and the sustenance of the covenant. There's nothing man-made about it. It's not a plea bargain initiated by man. It isn't a plea bargain where you promise to do what's right and you promise to be better. By the way, I just need to tell you something. All religion is man-made religion or demonically inspired religion. There's really only one way to approach God. And that rubs people the wrong way, but it's always been that way. Since the beginning, with Cain and Abel, you can come to God on God's terms, or you can come to God on your own terms. So let me be careful when I use the term religion. Let's talk about the covenant of God and God's revelation. Sometimes the word religion falls short. It is true that James, the brother of Jesus, in the New Testament, he says, this is pure religion and undefiled, that you minister to the widows and the orphans. In that particular context, it didn't mean a man-made religion or religious activity or religious ritual. What it meant was a heartfelt expression of care and support. I suspect that there is a pure and undefiled expression of religion like James talks about. But we are so inundated with man-made religion and man-made philosophy that we typically begin to think in terms of religion from a definitional standpoint of man's attempt to try and discover God or have a right relationship with God or be with God, but Christianity is exactly the opposite. It isn't man's attempt to enter into a relationship with God, but rather it's God's descent that God becomes a man in the person of Jesus so that you can experience life and love. So the parties to the new covenant are going to be God and Judah and Israel. And when you read that, you might think, does that mean that the covenant is limited to Judah and Israel? If all you knew about was Jeremiah, you might come to that conclusion. 
But if you've had the privilege of ever reading the New Testament and hearing the story of Jesus and how Jesus loved you and died for you and how on the last week of his life, remember, he'll take bread and he'll break it and he'll give it to his disciples and he'll say, this is my body which is broken for you. He'll take a cup, he'll give thanks and praise. He'll offer the cup and he'll say, this is the cup of my blood, the blood of the new And the everlasting covenant, which will be shed for the forgiveness of sins. If you read the New Testament, you're going to discover something. That that God in Christ is going to make a new covenant, not just simply for Judah and Israel, but for the world. And so Jesus will explain the meaning and the extent of the new and the everlasting covenant By by the way, in the Old Testament, the term for covenant is beret, bereth or beret. In the New Testament Greek, it's diatheki. It's a word that means a promise or an agreement between two parties. Typically in the Old Testament and the New Testament, when it's talking about this old covenant or the new covenant, the parties are an agreement between God and man. So remember that this is an agreement. And an agreement would usually take two different forms. It would either be conditional or unconditional. There are eight important covenants that are talked about in the Bible. There are more, but just in broad general terms, I just want to just quickly go over them with you. The first is the covenant with Adam. You'll remember before the fall that he could remain in Eden so long as he obeyed. He he couldn't, along with his wife, eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. How long did that last? We're not told, but it was pretty short. It was a conditional covenant and it was broken. There's another part to the covenant. Another part of the covenant was entered after the fall. After the fall, God promised that he would send a savior, a Messiah, that the woman would give birth to a child. That promise was unconditional. The second is the covenant with Noah. You'll remember that Noah was promised that the earth would be destroyed, and it was. And then there was a promise that the earth would never be destroyed by water again. That the seasons would exist and continue to the end. That becomes an unconditional promise by God. Sorry, global warming. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that the world will not drown in a catastrophic uh, bath of water. Um, The Bible says so long as the earth is on its axis and the sun revolves around, um, the, the earth revolves around the sun, things are going to continue. That's the point. So there's a covenant with Adam. There's a covenant with Noah. There's a covenant with Abraham. You'll remember that God tells Abraham that he's going to be the father and the founder of a great nation, that God would someday give them the promised land, Israel. He would do this forever to Abraham's seed. That's an unconditional covenant. Then there was the covenant with Moses and Israel, that Israel would have the land um, and that they would enter into the land if if, if they obeyed the covenants and the promises and the commandments. Israel would forfeit 
the blessings if they disobeyed. So God gives Moses the commandments. The covenant is conditional. Does Israel keep the commandments? No. The blessings are conditional. And so the, 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 the blessings are withdrawn. And so there's also the covenant with David. That David would have an everlasting throne. That David would initiate an everlasting kingdom. And that from David would come an everlasting king. So the covenant with David, that he would have an everlasting throne. That it would initiate an everlasting kingdom. That he would have an everlasting heir. Conditional or unconditional? It's unconditional. It's unconditional. Then there's the covenant with the church. That Jesus would build his church on the basis of his sacrifice and blood. And that the gates of hell, I just like to say it that way, would not prevail against it. Conditional or unconditional? That's unconditional. That's an unconditional promise. And then there's the covenant with all repenting sinners. That if repenting sinners would turn from their sin and turn to Christ, they would be saved. Conditional or unconditional? It is unconditional. It's unconditional. Let me use a different word for unconditional. No strings attached. Has anyone ever tried to make a deal with you and they go, okay, I'm going to, hi there, groovy guys, groovy gals. I'm going to make this exciting, you know, it's like the TV specials. You're not going to get just one, but, but wait, there's more. And you're wondering if there's conditions associated with this promise. And there isn't. The Bible says, confess with your mouth, believe in your heart. that God raised Jesus from the dead and you will be saved. And then there's this covenant. There's this one that we're reading about right now with Israel, that God will eventually bring Israel back to himself. God will forgive their iniquity and forget their sin and that he will use them to reach the Gentiles. And that he will establish them in the land forever. Conditional or unconditional? It is, it's unconditional. There's no strings attached. He's going to do this. He's going to do this. Look what it says. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them out of the land to lead, or when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke. Though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. Here he's talking about the need for a new covenant. The new covenant is 
contrasted with the old covenant. Remember, the old covenant found its origin and explanation in the deliverance of the people from the land of Egypt. The deliverance is a type and a shadow. Remember, you remember that the children of Israel are, are slaves in Egypt. Um, you know the story how God raises up Moses to send them to liberate them, that God tells them to get a lamb and to sacrifice the lamb and to take the blood and to wipe the blood or to spread the blood on the lentils of the doorpost so that when the avenging angel, the angel of death comes by, that they'll pass over their home and that God will deliver them. There is in this deliverance a type, a picture, an application of blood, of deliverance. So why was there a need for a new covenant? Because the old covenant could be easily broken. God gave the commandments and no sooner does he liberate them and he takes them out of Egypt and into the land of promise through signs and miracles. In, in Exodus chapter 19, he sends Moses to the top of the mountain to receive the commandments. And where are the children of Israel? They're at the bottom of the mountain. And what are they doing? They make a golden... Wait, okay, was one of the, the commandments, idolatry, out. Idolatry, no. No idolatry. And all of the other nine commandments. You know, about coveting your neighbor's wife and coveting your neighbor's goods. And so there is this wild party at the bottom, how many of the commandments had they broken by the time Moses gets down there? Pretty much all of them. They're all broken. In every generation, without exception, has there ever been a generation, ever, ever, just one, just one generation where they turned from God, they followed in the sinful footsteps of their fathers and, and led wicked lives. Is there a single generation that, that turned to God and lived lives of complete obedience to the commandments and lived righteous lives? Ever. How many generations? Zero. So, the people repeatedly, consistently broke the commandments of God. They broke the covenant. The covenant they agreed to pattern their lives after, that they swore that they would uphold, that they would forsake false gods, that they would embrace the true God, that they would embrace purity, and that they would cease and desist from adultery and sexual perversion, that they would obey God's word, that they, they would honor the prophets, but instead they deny God's word, they persecute the prophets, they engage in every kind of evil and wickedness that you can imagine. One thing is for sure, one thing is for sure. If God could have perfected human beings under the covenant of the law, he would not have sent his son Jesus Christ to live the perfect life and die on the cross for your sins. God wouldn't have sent Jesus. So there needed to be a new covenant. It says in verse 33, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. I don't have time to go over it, 
but I've posted a contrast between the law of God, the law covenant made old, the new covenant different and fresh. There's some 69 things on here. I talk about the old covenant, the first covenant, how it came by Moses. Um, it was the law of sin. It was the law of the flesh. It didn't come by faith. It was a yoke of bondage. It ended by Christ. The law of death, it entangles. It's a shadow fulfilled. People were left imperfect. It was glorious, but it was powerless to save. And in the new covenant, the sec it's called the sec second covenant. It came by Christ and the law of Christ, the law of righteousness, the law of the spirit, the law of faith, the law of liberty established by Jesus. It's the law of life. Instead of entangling you, it makes you free. Instead of it's a shadow, it's reality. Instead of fulfilled, it's now in force. Instead of leaving people imperfect, it makes you perfect. Both are glorious, but the new one is more glorious. The old one was powerless to save. The new one saves you to the uttermost. The old one included many sacrifices. The new one was only one sacrifice. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. John Stott writes, It's a new righteousness which the prophets foresaw as one of the blessings of the messianic age. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. How would he do that? Ezekiel chapter 36 verse 27. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. How's he going to do this? He's going to change you. He's going to give you a new life and a new heart and a new freedom and a new future. And it's based on the new promise. So what does the new covenant do? It gives true believers the power to have a personal relationship and fellowship with God. Now I want you to think about what you're reading in Jeremiah. What you're reading about is the Lord's Revelation. This isn't wishful thinking on the part of man, but this is rather the revelation of God. Haven't you ever said, I need you to fix me. I need you to forgive me. I need you to wash me and cleanse me. If I'm going to make it, you're going to have to make it happen. If I'm going to experience your love, if I'm going to experience your forgiveness, if I'm going to experience any kind of hope, you're going to have to make it happen. And that's exactly what God is saying. What does the new covenant do? It gives you a right relationship. It gives you fellowship. You get to commune, commune and have fellowship with God. This is just a way of saying you can pray. You get to pray. You get to close your eyes. And you're not just praying to the sky. I grew up in a generation where we used to sing to the spirit in the sky. Going to recommend you to the spirit in the sky. You, uh, you, some of you are old enough to remember. That's where I'm going to go when I die. When I die and they lay me to rest. You know the song. But for most of the people in my generation, it was just a chant. A hope. How can you have a right relationship with the spirit in the sky if you don't know him, if you've never known him, if you've never experienced washing and cleansing and forgiveness? But this is what the new covenant does. 
In the new covenant, you have the power to go directly to God. You have the power to go directly to God and receive forgiveness from God. And in verse 34, it says, No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. Now, I want you to think about this messianic age. Do you know what the promise is in this messianic age? There's no evangelism. In this messianic age, imagine you go to, uh, up to a person, you go, hey, do you know the Lord? Of course I do. Do you know the Lord? Of course I do. You go to the gas station, if there is gas stations in the messianic age, where it's 29 cents a gallon again. You know the Lord? Everybody knows the Lord. He says, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. It's okay for you to ask that question. How is it possible for a God who never forgets anything to forget your iniquity? How is it possible for God to not remember what you always remember, what you never seem to forget. And the picture in the Bible is that your transgression is like a mark, a blot, an injury that God paints red. An impenetrable barrier begins to take place as he sees you, not as you see yourself, but as he sees Jesus righteous. And what are the terms of the new covenant? People who approach God place their faith and their confidence in his ability to cleanse, in his ability to make right. You see, this is why Christians are saved by grace through faith. It's not of yourselves, Paul will write. Belief in Jesus is essential. The debt of sin is paid on the cross of Calvary. The, the blood of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus is for both Jew and Gentile. I want you to put your finger on Jeremiah chapter 31 just for a moment and turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans chapter 11. And in the book of Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 12, Paul writes, Now, if their fall, that is the Jews, is riches for the, new, for the world, that's the Gentiles, and their failure, riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry, if by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh. Jews and save some of them. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? For if the firstborn is holy, the lump is also holy, and the root is holy, and so are the branches. Paul is going to give an analysis, if you will, of what's going to happen at the end of the age, and it did happen. The Jews reject Jesus, his sacrifice, his resurrection from the dead. But Jeremiah is including the promise that there is going to come a day, there is going to come a day, there is going to come a day when the Jewish people wake up to the reality of who the Jewish Messiah really is. 
In Ephesians 1, 7, it says, In him, that is in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin according to the riches of his grace. So the basis of the new covenant is the death of Jesus. He's the mediator of the new covenant. Here is the idea. Jesus is the one who brings people to God. That's the idea. That's why it's our responsibility to place our faith in God's son, to follow him, to honor him, to obey him. The Bible says that when we receive Christ, we are imparted with the new birth. Jesus comes into our life. You become a new person. God sends his spirit to live in believers and dwell in them who trust Christ. It's the spirit of God who stirs up the believer to follow him and please him and obey him. This is all the point that's being made in Jeremiah chapter 31 through 34. How am I going to know you? I'm going to know you. How am I going to follow you? I'm going to place my spirit inside of you. How can I trust that I'm going to do what you want me to do, because I'm going to tell you. I'm going to urge you. I'm going to lead you. I'm going to guide you. I'm going to remind you of what's honoring and what's dishonoring. This is the new covenant that Jeremiah hints at and is the basis of the covenant to both Jew and Gentile. And this is exactly what Paul had in mind when he wrote Ephesians chapter 4, when he said, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And then again, and if it says, And be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Paul envisions for the Gentile that what you do, is you strip of everything that was old and everything that was wicked and everything that was foreign and everything that was wrong and you put on a new garment and the garment is Christ himself. John Wesley wrote it this way in his prayer. Lord, I am no longer my own but yours Put me to do what you will. Let me be employed by you or laid aside by you, exalted for you or brought low by you. Let me have all things. I know what people are thinking. I knew he was a name it and claim it guy. Read the rest. Let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. And now, O glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are mine and I am yours. That's the new covenant. That's the new covenant that you all participate in in the person of Jesus and that we're going to celebrate in just a few moments. Thus says the Lord, it says in verse 35, who gives the sun for a light by day, the ordinances of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea and the waves roar. It's the Lord of hosts is his name. When it says, thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for a light by day, it's a part of the, the old covenant. Remember what God said? As long as the sun shines, I'm going to keep my promise. The ordinances of the moon and the stars by a light by night. It becomes his signature on the dotted line. God, will you keep your promise? When you leave tonight, I want you to look up and see if you can see the stars. Because if they're there, he'll keep his promise. 
Lord, will you keep your promise? If you wake up tomorrow, even though the sun may not be shining, it's drizzly because it's snowing. Is there a sun beyond the clouds? The answer is yes. If you can determine that the sun is there, he'll keep his promise. If you can determine that the moon is there, he'll keep his promise. If you can go to Google Earth and find any ocean on the planet Earth and watch the wave come in, you can be sure that he'll keep his promise. That's what that means. That's what the ordinances are. And you see, this is why we actually refer to baptism and the Lord's Supper as an ordinance. An ordinance is something that typifies, explains, and reminds about a promise. You know, in the New Testament, that's why the Bible says, when you do this, do it often in remembrance of me. It says, if these ordinances depart from before me, in verse 36, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. Do you understand what you're reading? What you're reading is, if I can fail to keep my promises, then Israel can fail, and the promises that I've made towards Israel can fail. So here's my question to you. Can God cease to exist? If he could cease to exist, he wouldn't be the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible cannot cease to exist. Here is the idea. The new covenant is eternal. Here's the, the point that I want you to get. What is the picture and what is the point? When you look at the expression, then the seed of Israel shall also cease. Is he talking about the political entity Israel? Is he talking about ethnic Israel? Is he talking about the spiritual entity Israel? Is he talking about the true Israel? Well, Paul talks about the true Israel in Romans chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 11. I'm going to suggest to you that there is a sense in which Israel is a political unit and an ethnic unit and a people group, but also a group of people who are known by God and kept by God. Here's the key point. The new covenant is eternal and those who agree to its terms become an eternal people. That makes sense to you, doesn't it? If this is an eternal promise to an eternal people, then an eternal promise to an eternal people is going to require an eternal place to live. And that's what he's going to talk about. What are the guarantees of the new covenant? That they won't cease to exist as a nation before him. The eternal existence of Israel, guaranteed by God's creative power. The same power that was used to make the universe and sustain the universe. The same power that holds the universe in place. The, prom the promise, if guaranteed by God's infinite power, a power so great that it created the immeasurable heavens. And again, Paul talks about it in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. 
where Paul, I believe, meditating on this passage, which we're studying tonight, came to the conclusion that everything exists according to the power and the glory and the majesty of Jesus Christ himself. Jesus is the cosmic glue that holds all of reality together. And that's why he says in verse 37, thus says the Lord, if heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, says the Lord. Skeptics have said, aha, he's failed in his promise because the heavens can be measured. It's exactly 14 and a half billion miles across, light years. I should know this. But really, has anyone ever come to the gate at the end of the universe? Do you know anybody? Have you ever known anyone who's come to the very edge of the universe and said, whew, I wonder what's just, just beyond this edge? By the way, how many people do you know who have journeyed to the center of the earth? You know, people speculate, cogitate, and otherwise try and figure out what is exactly going on in the sum and the substance of our planet They've speculated, but no one really knows. He says, the moment that human beings can come to the very edge of the universe, the moment that human beings are able to journey to the center of the earth, well, then I might think about casting off these people. Look what it says in verse 38. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that the city shall be built for the Lord from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate. I need you to understand something. Remember what I just said. If there's an eternal promise made to an eternal people, they need an eternal place to live. And that's the point that Jeremiah is making. Jerusalem. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that the city shall be built for the Lord. What city is that? It's the city of Jerusalem. The city that is filled with the stench of death and slavery. The city that's a heap of ruins, a pile of trash. But Jeremiah has a vision of a city that's rebuilt and that you're in that city. Why must the city of Jerusalem be rebuilt? Why is Jerusalem so important? Because Jerusalem is a sacred place. It's a place dedicated to the Lord. I was listening to Benjamin Netanyahu the other day when he was giving his address to the American people, the American-Israeli pact, and he made the statement in 1967 when we liberated Jerusalem, it became the undivided and eternal capital of Israel. Recently I was in Israel I was leading a tour and I said to the bus driver, if I ever am elected president of the United States, my first declaration will be Jerusalem is the permanent, eternal, undivided capital of Israel forever. And the bus driver turned around and he looked at me and he smiled and he said, I'm voting for you. 
an eternal promise for an eternal people requires an eternal capital. We're told in other scriptures that God will create a new heaven and a new earth. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, and we're, getting, we're given a vision of an eternal city that comes down from the heavens where the eternal people live forever and ever. What Jeremiah is saying is that Jerusalem will be rebuilt and enlarged. And that the surveyor's line shall again extend straight over the hill Gareb, and it shall turn toward Goat. Um, the word Gareb means jug, but similar words can mean scaby or leprous or scales. The surveyor's line shall again extend straight forward over the hill Gareb, then it shall turn toward Goath. I'm going to suggest to you that this hill may have been marked the southwest corner of the city. It's unknown. The only place that it ever appears in the scripture is this verse. The word goath means lowing. Again, unknown, except for this verse. It might indicate a boundary, possibly the place where Hinnom, the Teropian and the Kidron Valleys. There's three valleys that sort of merge, if you will, right on the edge of Jerusalem in three places. In verse 40, it says, in the whole valley of the dead bodies and of the ashes, the fields as far as the brook Kidron to the corner of the horse gate toward the east shall be holy to the Lord. It shall not be plucked up or thrown down anymore forever. The word Kidron means dark or turbid. So I'm gonna to suggest to you what he's doing is he's laying out the boundaries of Jerusalem and he's prophesying and the prophecy, whatever else it means is this. Jerusalem is expanded and extended in order to accommodate the eternal promise and the eternal people. And then it says in verse 40, and the whole valley of the dead bodies and of the ashes and all the fields as far as the brook Kedron to the corner of the horse gate toward the east shall be Kadosh. That word holy is Kadosh. The word can be translated sacred. When it's translated holy, it means set aside for the purpose of God. And in the Hebrew language, it is supposed to express in the strongest possible terms that it must be permanently used for God and by God. And so he's laying out the borders from the north to the south to the east to the west because an eternal promise for an eternal people requires an eternal dwelling place so what is Jeremiah's message? That Israel will endure. That Jerusalem will stand. That an eternal God will make an eternal promise for an eternal people to occupy an eternal place. We're going to have communion in just a moment. But that's the message of communion. That's the message of the Lord's Supper. 
That's the message of the sacrifice of Jesus. That the sacrifice of Jesus imparts an eternal promise for an eternal people who will know him and love him and serve him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that the old covenant was powerless to save, but the new covenant saves to the uttermost. The old covenant had so many sacrifices. The new covenant, there's one sacrifice for sin. The old covenant had temporary priests, and the new covenant, an eternal priest. In the, in the old covenant, we remembered our sins, and you remembered our sins. And in the new covenant, we might remember our sins, but you forget them forever. And so, Heavenly Father, I pray for that person. I pray for that man. I pray for that woman who, for whatever reason, has wandered far from the eternal promise and has somehow forgotten that they are an eternal person destined to live in an eternal place. Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would draw them back to yourself. Lord, I pray that they would confess their sin and turn from their sin and renew their friendship and relationship and fellowship and allegiance with you. And that they would, with all of their mind and with all of their heart, desire you to love you and to serve you and to be with you. In Jesus' name, amen.